It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Morningstar Mecrity. She's here to tell us about a book that just recently came out. It is entitled Sacred Bundles Unborn. You can find out more by going to sacredbundlesunborn.com and you can also Google Sacred Bundles Unborn to find out where you might be able to pick up a book. However, I just want to mention before we get started with Morningstar that uh, some of the information and some of the stories we might be sharing here on the show today could be triggering for people. Uh, as we're going to be talking about some very sensitive issues around um, sterilization of women, indigenous women, whether they have been coerced or have not given their consent to have this done to them. And uh, she is also here to tell us more about that. So, Morningstar, welcome. Hi, pleasure to be here. So, can you give me a little bit of the backstory on this, uh, about how it came about and why you thought it was important to bring this forward? Forced coerced sterilization of Indigenous women and women of colour has been ongoing since probably the first residential school with experiments there, as well as Indian hospitals throughout Canada. So, the history of coerced forced sterilization isn't uh, limited to experiences in the healthcare in a hospital. Mm. It's historical and it's ongoing uh, as in it's ongoing today mm. in 2022 for the, the objective of the book as is the long term goal on my part and on the part of many people who have been advocating for change for sterilization to be criminalized in Canada mm. I have to pay homage to all of the women, all of the aunties, all of the grandmothers and mothers who have been speaking out within our communities at a grassroots level for those survivors who had experienced forced or coerced sterilization to the to these women and their families and their communities. I this is for you. The book mm. is for you. It's for all of us, for all of us survivors. So uh, being a survivor myself, yeah. uh, as I believe I effectively talk about in my chapter, mm-hmm. Sacred Bundles Unborn, um, living with PTSD, and I think probably generationally obviously indigenous people metis inuit we all to some degree or another experience ptsd now as it relates to myself and the story i wasn't and my experience as a survivor i wasn't able to talk about what happened mm-hmm. until i was in my 50s right and it sounded like from the way you you depicted the story that it had been buried in your memory absolutely it was a memory that i had compartmentalized Mm. deep within my psyche because after what happened i went into a catatonic state and had a nervous breakdown i was so young i was 14 years old yeah now the fact that you were 14 um, and you went into the hospital yourself. You had no contacts uh, at the hospital when you were there either. That's right. I was by myself. And that pregnant that pregnancy was also because you went in there because you you were pregnant, but uh, you had fallen or something, and you were concerned about the baby. But that was also uh, an unplanned, um, and it, if I'm not mistaken, it was it was from a, a violent encounter. Precisely, without getting into too many details. And I do want to say to your audience right now, trigger warning. Yes, We're talking about uh, some very sensitive issues that potentially some of your audience uh, will be triggered by. So that being said, I was in fact raped when I was 13 and resulted in the pregnancy. The pregnancy that I chose to keep because when I went to the doctor and my community of Fort Chippewan, Alberta at that time. Uh, the doctor let me know, of course, that I was pregnant. And 
without consulting me, um, he began, as he was telling me that I was pregnant, he began writing, he was writing and he said, well, basically he was making arrangements for me to be flown south uh, so that I could have an abortion without consulting me. Hmm. I made it very clear to this, to the late Dr. Nicholson that I had no intentions of having an abortion and every intention of having this child. So I then contacted the, uh, the rapist who was a friend of the family and informed him that, you know, I wasn't so diplomatic in my conversation with mm. him. He got the gist of it. Mm. So the doctor wrote me a doctor's note and that was sent to the rapist. And consequently that permitted me to leave my community. And I went to Saskatoon where I, was adamant that I would have my baby and raise my baby. So it was as a result of um, a slip. Uh, I began after this slip. I was in my second trimester, just a little more than seven months. I wasn't hemorrhaging or anything, but I certainly was cramping and mm -hmm. I was concerned, obviously. So I found a girlfriend and uh, she, she suggested, encouraged me to get to emerge, which I did. So I went to Saskatoon City Hospital. And I don't know when exactly I was released. I don't know how long I was there. Very vague memory in that. I was certainly sedated throughout the process. What I will say, though, um, is that when I was released, I was released without my baby, uh, which to this date, I don't know what happened. And... I don't want to get into many other any more details other than that to the best of my ability i'm quite explicit in the details in, in the mm -hmm. chapter that i wrote in sacred bundles unborn yes absolutely and i appreciate you sharing that much of the story and uh people that want to read it of course can go to uh can read that further in the book sacred bundles unborn as you said now where can people find this book where can they get a hold of it um the book itself, you can, if you go on to, online, the miracle of the miracle of Google, mm. the miracle of the internet. Yes. Basically, if you look up sacred bundles unborn, you'll have various channels that you can order the book from. Freeze and Press, obviously, being one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm in the process right now of getting the books into bookstores. Right. Really excited about that. Mm -hmm. Really excited about the book going out. Ecstatic about the shout out, shout out from Margaret Atwood on yeah. International Women's Day. Yes. She recommended two books to, for, to, for the audience or for, for people to read. And I was astounded and taken aback and just so overwhelmed with gratitude and that Margaret Atwood recommended Sacred Bundles Unborn as one of the books yes. to read. Yes, absolutely. Congratulations on that. And uh, speaking of the book, uh, can, let's talk a little bit about this and let's start with the cover, if you don't mind. Jennifer Leeson, yes. Mm -hmm. She is an artist, poet, extraordinary woman. She's She teaches at the University of Calgary and... I, she, as with all of the contributors and slash firekeepers, mm. Jennifer was so, is so incredibly remarkable as an artist, as a human being, as a woman. She's just one of the most beautiful people I've had the pleasure of, of meeting. Her art is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. There are no words to describe <laughs> it. And certainly she, we, we had, Obviously, throughout this process, the process itself, if if you will, uh, began with ceremony. I mean, tobacco was put mm -hmm. down, mm -hmm. protocol was put in place. This wasn't handled. Um, this was handled in the most gentle, the most sincere and precious manner, right? The whole process mm -hmm. now, because of what we're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, so... So I've had many conversations with Jennifer, as I've mentioned, and consequently, the cover of the book is one of the results of those many conversations. And throughout the book, 
are additional yes. pieces of her artwork that she created specifically for Sacred Bundles Unborn. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they're incredible. They certainly are. They they certainly are. Um, and she did such a wonderful job of pulling that all together and then describing everything that is in the cover and why it's there and the importance of it as well. Exactly. Now, in terms of the, the uh, people that contributed to the book, you certainly have uh, a wide range of people from both victims as well as people working in the health industry. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? The Firekeepers are an extraordinary group of people for their advocacy work, for you know just who they are and what they've done in their life's work. Mm. I mean, we have... Mary Allen Trapel of Fond, you know, Yvonne Boyer, mm-hmm. Karen Lawford, Karen Stout, it just goes on. Mm-hmm. Gary Geddes, the author of Medicine Unbundled. I mean, he's written about Medicine Unbundled, he is about the Indian hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Alika LaFontaine, you know, it, mm-hmm. it just goes on and on. There. Yeah. One of the um, Victoria is her chapter they're all every every chapter is so poignant mm-hmm. and so beautifully written mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, each each author is phenomenal phenomenal storytellers and writers yeah so um victoria is the president of the association of women victims of forced sterilization in Peru, in her community, which mm-hmm. I don't want to try. I, I can't even begin to try and articulate or not articulate, but pronounce um, <laughs> the community and the right. language that she speaks. Right. I would butcher it. She was, um, she wraps up the book and she does it so eloquently. She she's talking, talks about the experience of, herself and the women in her community, which is just astounding. Mm. Forced coerced sterilization on a global level affects primarily and predominantly indigenous women and women of color. I mean, recently read, I recently read an article by a group of indigenous women from Panama that are in the process of taking legal action mm. for what happened to their women. Mm. It's, it's throughout Turtle Island. Mm-hmm. So to have this, group of firekeepers contribute to sacred bundles unborn so eloquently with such humanity is just extraordinary because of what we're talking about. One of the things that I, in, I was adamant about in talking with all of the firekeepers is that I asked if everyone could please put their hats you know, just hang their hats in terms of what they do with all due respect, because we have some, we have some big names here. Mm -hmm. And I asked if they would write in first person as mothers, as aunties, as grandmothers, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and speak to our community, our families. It's, it's so intimate. Mm. And that was in essence, what was done by each author Ewan Affleck is Dr. Ewan Affleck. Mm. So Ewan's chapter, I mean, among all of them, Alyssa Lombard, Mm -hmm. like I can't say enough about how genuine each author and each, again, firekeeper is in, and that they did effectively do to the best of their ability and beyond. It was poignant. Absolutely. And, uh, think that may help uh, get people over to uh, Google this, as you were saying, and find out where people can pick up a copy. Um, if you want to find out more, Sacred Bundles Unborn is what it's called. And by the way, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My guest here on the show is Morningstar Mercury, and uh, we're talking about Sacred Bundles Unborn. Uh, she, along with the other firekeepers, as she has mentioned, are the people that uh, took part in putting this book together. Are, are you aware that, that things are changing, that things are becoming more difficult to have this done without a person's consent? 
In an ideal world, that would be the case. However, that is not the case until course first sterilization is criminalized in Canada and people are held accountable. Mm. This will continue, I believe, without a doubt that it is continuing in 2022. In fact, I am aware that it is. Um, certainly, the book was written, obviously, to bring awareness to this ongoing form of genocide because it is still happening. Mm. Again, the end game is to have it criminalized in Canada so that a visibly Indigenous woman or a woman of colour who seem to be the primary victims of sterilization, mm -hmm. whether forced or coerced, can, in their most vulnerable state of pregnancy, can safely go to a hospital without having to be concerned about whether or not they'll be victims of coerced forced mm -hmm. sterilization. Yeah. There's a couple of terms that I wouldn't mind if we could explain for people that are may be unaware, like many people were unaware about, uh, you know, residential schools or uh, unmarked graves that have, that are now being found that, that a lot of people had no idea about. The birth alerts. Could you tell people what birth alerts are? Birth alerts are when, and specifically for, it seems to me, Indigenous women who, when they go to the hospital to deliver their baby, it will be at the discretion of the practitioner, whether that be the intake upon the person taking registering you in, when you go to the hospital, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, or otherwise. If in their biased opinion, uh, while profiling this patient or woman who's about to give birth, they can signal what's termed a birth alert. That begins the whole process that unravels placing the, the mother and the child and indeed the mother's family and her children at risk for child welfare to intervene for whatever reason this said pr practitioner feels that this birth alert was warranted. Hmm. Consequently, the baby and in many instances, the baby and often it goes into the children are apprehended. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> uh, birth alerts, systemic racism is what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. The birth alert is one component of that, where Indigenous women and women of colour are placed at risk when going for medical help mm -hmm. or to deliver their baby. Mm -hmm. This is a very clear form of systemic racism. And the other thing that goes along with that, that you mention in here, is Indian hospitals. Charles Campbell Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta, was one of those hospitals. It was uh, an Indian hospital. What people are unaware of, because first of all, it is uh, minimized, denied, or just not acknowledged in curriculum or Canadian history, with intent, that is, the an Indian hospital, essentially, and I'll speak specifically to the Charles Campbell Hospital here in Edmonton, which has been closed for a few decades now. That's a really good example. And that's a good example because what people are unaware of is that as children were legally apprehended and incarcerated in the institutes, <laughs> labor camps, what have you, of residential schools, mm. otherwise known as residential schools. Mm. Children were also legally placed in Indian hospitals. My late granny Annie, I'm, I understand she had 12 or more children. She spent the majority of her life in Edmonton because the majority of her children were in the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital. Of all of her children, four survived. Wow. Of the four that survived, three were in Charles Campbell Hospital. Of the four, two were two of her surviving children, my late mom and my late aunt, were able to conceive and have they had many children. The other my other aunt, my late aunt and my uncle were unable to conceive. It's common knowledge 
that in Indian hospitals, Indigenous children, uh, be they Métis, Inuit, or uh, First Peoples, were experimented on, and sterilization definitely happened at those times. Um, mm. I can't fathom what it was that my late granny had to endure in her lifetime. I can, I'm confident though that the advocacy for change to the advocacy for our children to not be commodified as Indigenous children and mm. babies have been. I mean, bureaucracies have been established in Canada, establishing Canada on the backbone of our women and our children have become a commodified people. And that goes historically back to residential schools, Indian hospitals. I mean, we don't know how much these surgeons or doctors are paid to sterilize, mm. to sterilize an Indigenous woman. So it's like these very traumatic, horrific stories that we all share in our communities when it came to um, Every Child Matters. Well, in my community of Fort Chip One, as I write about in my book, Morningstar Warrior Spirit, mm. there were haunting echoes of when the mission was torn down, that fetal skeletals were within the walls and, and on the grounds. And we know, we know that for a fact. These stories that we've carried in our communities and told with in our communities for decades, I mean, decades, generations. And then finally, you know, the atrocity of this genocide mm -hmm. is being brought to the forefront. And if the average Canadian is shocked or horrified, wonderful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Imagine how we feel. Mm -hmm. You know, the, there is a, a bittersweet, um, I don't know how to describe it. When I recognize now and I look out into society, if you will, and what they're reflecting back in, in their horror and their humanity and their grieving, if you will, because we were all shocked whenever Child Matters was brought to the forefront. The difference being, though, is in Indigenous communities, we've always known. Right. So I'm addressing the, what has become the obvious in the last year, and it's ongoing. We have just scratched the surface. Mm. I know for a fact that I have relatives that were buried here in St. Albert mm. that from the Charles Council Indian Hospital. So when it comes to forced core sterilization of Indigenous women, it's much like Every Child Matters. Mm -hmm. It's a continuum of residential schools and a continuum of policies that are in place that justify the sterilization of Indigenous women and women of color mm -hmm. with impunity, without accountability. And this is ongoing. Something you, you alluded to there with lineage and seven generations looking forward and seven generations looking back. And uh, there's another comment about touching your belly button and realizing that in touching your belly button, that was your connection to your mother. You were attached to your mother and they were attached to their mother from the same way. And I, I saw this lineage just, it was a very simple, clear way of looking. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That, that connects us all right back to the mother earth. It goes way back. Uh, and I just thought, what a beautiful way of showing us that we are all connected. Absolutely. If you don't mind that you're referencing Jennifer Leeson's poem, Matriarchal yes. Wisdom, yes. which is in fact the title mm -hmm. of the cover of the book, mm. Sacred Bundles Unborn. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read that. <clears throat> Matriarchal Wisdom. Touch your belly button. Who were you connected to? Your mother. And when your mother touches her belly button, who was she connected to? Your grandmother. Our matriarchal umbilical cord connects us all to our first mother, Mother Earth. This is the power of our matriarchal wisdom. Grounded and connected to place, land, water, and the source 
of all life. Life givers, seed carriers, water protectors. This is our matriarchal wisdom. Morning, sir. We're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the show and Shimiguechi Nyawagoa for bringing this book together with you and the other firekeepers. It has some stories in there that could be triggering, so people should be aware of that as well. And thank you once again for taking the time to join me on the show. I really appreciate it and wish you all the best with this. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to interview me and until forced coerced sterilization of indigenous women is criminalized in Canada, we are at risk. Women of color, indigenous women are at risk and will remain at risk of forced coerced sterilization until it is criminalized. And until we as a people ensure that we do everything possible to protect our women Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from this happening to them. And it is ongoing. This is not historical. This is not a legacy. This is not past tense. It is ongoing. Yes. Thank you once again so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That is Morningstar Meckerty, and she's been telling us about the book Sacred Bundles Unborn. You can find it at sacredbundlesunborn.com. You can also just Google the name Sacred Bundles Unborn to find out more and where you might be able to get a copy of this. I'm David Moses, the host of Moment of Truth here on Element FM. Thank you for listening to the show each and every day. And that is this portion of our show. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after these messages. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Slava Balan. He's a human rights researcher and practitioner, originally from Moldova, but now in Canada. Slava holds master's degrees in comparative law from McGill University, as well as master's degree in comparative consultation law from the Central European University and law degree from the Moldova State University. His professional experience includes work with the United Nations in Moldova and Ukraine, and Amnesty International, Moldova, Freedom House, Moldovian Academy, and Public Administration, OSCE. And it's a pleasure to have Slava here on the show to use his article that he authored in the conversation as a bit of a launch point for our talk here on the show. And it is entitled, Canada Must Accommodate Indigenous and Minority Languages to be Truly Multicultural. So, Slava, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's an interesting and timely article you have here, of course, with uh, the appointment of the recent uh, Mary Simon as Canada's first uh, Inuit Governor General. It points to perhaps more use uh, and inclusion of uh, multicultural languages. What is your take on this, though? From your perspective, I guess, it's really interesting as someone that is from outside the country and coming into Canada, seeing it uh, from your perspective in terms of what what is what we have done, what we haven't done, how we have included languages like French and English as the official languages. But, and, but you have also pointed out in your article about Indigenous language, and you've seen and you also point out about how Canada has treated Indigenous people over the years. Residential school, the fact that they deliberately tried to eliminate the language and culture of Indigenous people native to Turtle Island or Canada as we know it. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'd like to to say that, um, as you mentioned, as I mentioned the article, I think 2022 is the year to start this broad discussion for many reasons, uh, which concern some of the anniversaries, but also because uh, uh, if Canada is serious about reconciliation uh, with the indigenous peoples, uh, language is one of the issues which uh, cannot be avoided. Mm. And uh, this is something which is clearly stated by the indigenous uh, champions, indigenous uh, speakers. Uh, So uh, why waiting for longer? We have to start this discussion more seriously. Mm. And uh, as my piece also indicates, uh, not only there are calls launched uh, in this regard, but there is also a lawsuit uh, submitted with regard to the uh, education in Uktitut in Nunavut, which is both um, 
which means that this is not just the kind of the political, philosophical discussion, but it's also a legal discussion and a legal matter. Mm. So my article basically proposed to look at this issue from a human rights based point of view, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, until recently, not only in Canada, but in many other countries uh, of the world, um, the issues of languages uh, were mainly politicized issues. So either like internally politicized or geopolitically uh, politicized, uh, but mostly the languages were seen as sort of an issue of uh, who dominates, uh, who holds the power. Um, and that's not what the human rights actually say. There is the whole set of the human rights standards uh, in the world coming from the United Nations, from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which actually do establish some key parameters uh, with regard to languages. Mm. Uh, and not only the official languages, but also so-called minority languages or indigenous mm-hmm. languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, if, uh, again, Canada and the world is serious about human rights, if human rights are not just kind of nice slogans and nice words, we have to turn to human rights and actually get our inspiration on how this issue uh, is to be addressed uh, based on these human rights standards. You know, as you say that, I can't help but think about the current situation we find happening in Europe and in in Ukraine right now with Russia and what the fallout might be from this in years to come in terms of us maybe doing exactly that. Is this going to be maybe something that allows uh, countries to start looking and start being more uh, more representative and more free in terms of looking at how we uh, we give uh, that notice and that respect to, as you point out, minorities, uh, indigenous languages in their respective countries. I mean, other countries, of course, have indigenous people living in their countries as well. And um, so it, it might, do you think it might have something to do with, with the future of how we deal with these languages? Um, I really hope for that. I'm not sure whether this will happen exactly this ideal way how Mm. I hope for and how many other people hope for. Uh, Unfortunately, now the tensions are very high and uh, the rhetoric is very much back to sort of square one of kind of who holds more force, mm. more nuclear weapons in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid uh, in this uh, kind of heated, uh, weaponized uh, discussion, um, it's a bit difficult to uh, kind of to raise the human rights and the minority issues. Mm-hmm. But this should be done. Yeah. Even if it's difficult, even if it's um, Many people are concerned with the kind of other dimensions of this war. Uh, These issues should be raised if we want to reset basically the entire uh, global architecture in more rights-based, in more Mm human-centered terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, this very, um, uh, I think, noble and good direction which was given to the world by the universal declaration of human rights and mm-hmm. uh hu- international human rights treaties uh it had a very powerful potential all this body of the international standards but somehow with time got more and more sort of forgotten isolated and in my view the current situation uh, not only in ukraine uh, but in many other parts of the world is very much due to sort of um kind of oblivion sort of forgetting Mm -hmm. about the human rights basis Mm -hmm. of the global order which was promised uh, more than 75 years ago Mm. Um, this departure from human rights uh, in my view has a very direct contribution to these problems which uh, the humanity faces now May I ask, uh, you originally being from Moldova, what is the situation there? Do you have a perspective from your own country in, in terms of, of how is there indigenous people that live in Moldova? 
Uh, well, uh, there are no kind of indigenous people, peoples in the meaning which uh, this word is used uh, in other parts of the okay. world, but mm-hmm. Moldova certainly has minorities. Yes, okay. Uh, ethnic, linguistic, religious minorities. Mm. And uh, in my country of origin, unfortunately, this issue of languages, uh, ethnicities, uh, was also treated very much in a politicized manner. Mm. Um less from human rights based point of view um i really hope that as the result of this um, war or as a fallout of this war mm. um this well, this approach to languages to ethnic interethnic relations will change mm. and i think uh, this should should be uh, not a wake up call but you know like a serious call for for moldova uh for europe to reconsider uh its take on on uh, on minorities languages uh towards this rights-based approach because um all these narratives uh which actually fuel this uh, war for example from mm. putin from uh, mm. uh from russian federation that uh, we are defending uh, uh kind of russian speakers and so so far it's kind of it's a faulty politicized narrative mm-hmm. it's used as a pretext in this war and this is uh, not how the kind of the language issues or you know the minority protection issues should be defended or should be kind of uh, approached uh so um if we are not changing the whole paradigm the whole approach to ethnicities languages minority groups uh, and we don't take this kind of square rights-based position, which basically says that uh, all people are equal, mm-hmm. uh, including minorities. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned in my piece for the conversation, the mere fact that um, a majority group uh, is a majority right. and holds the power yes. should not by itself lead to just simple, brute, you know, outvoting mm-hmm. of minorities. Right. The fact that someone is in minority and obviously kind of in this uh, majority type voting cannot outvote the majority should not mean that these minorities should be kind of deprived of their right to develop their culture, to develop their languages, to use their languages. But that's unfortunately what is happening in many parts of the world, including in Canada. Uh, So if we ask ourselves uh, why English and French are uh, official languages of Canada. Um, while at the time when these languages were officialized in, in the country, there were many many speakers of other languages in the country. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the response uh, will be it's because the political power was with these two groups, with English speakers and uh, French speakers. Um, so the other groups were um, sidelined ultimately mm. not considered apparently and eventually that's why the languages of these groups um don't have any kind of status uh in canada but again coming back to this initial idea the fact that uh, two linguistic groups they are the majority overwhelming majority in canada but the fact that they hold this political power political majority does not mean that they can simply outvote indigenous peoples or non-indigenous minorities. Well, going back to what you were saying there about this being political, I think that the point that you raise about Canada's official languages being English and French, and if we look at the uh, time, and I think your article actually does point out about when uh, French became an official language in Canada. If we look at that time frame, uh, there could be some other political... uh, issues that were happening around at that time as well. Um, there was, you know, some some very uh, uneasiness happening within uh, Quebec and the desire to uh, separate. And I think that that by by bringing French into the uh, into the fold as an official language, I think that was one of the things that was done to appease the French population uh, to make them feel more inclusive of and included within the Canadian culture, so to speak. Yes. Yes, I understand, and that's absolutely fine. 
So basically, the inclusion of French language uh, at that point of time uh, was an important um, measure uh, to try to keep kind of the social cohesion, mm -hmm. and it should have been done. So now uh, the question, we are kind of broadening the question. Uh, what about the other minority groups? Right. Shouldn't we also consider them? Right. So basically, uh, I'm not saying obviously that uh, the, 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 the status achieved by the French language should now be downgraded or diminished. Right. I'm just saying, so what about the other minorities? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for sure. Before we go further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is Slava Balin, and he is a human rights researcher and practitioner, originally from Moldova, but now established in Canada. And he is also a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. So it's a pleasure to have him here. And we're using his article that was in the conversation and is in the conversation, if you would like to go there and read up on it. It is entitled, Canada Must Accommodate indigenous and minority languages to be truly multicultural. Um, now, the other thing your article points out, and you have sort of have alluded to this about why the time might be right for this to be starting to look at and, and be talked about is because the, this year is the uh, International Decade of Indigenous Languages. Um, so you say it's a good time for us to start this conversation. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, we should start this conversation at some point of time. Uh, so um, I think there were good opportunities to start this conversation even before that. Mm -hmm. For example, when the uh, report of the uh, Commission on Truth Reconciliation was released, because it actually makes reference to languages mm -hmm. as well. Yep. Um, okay, some discussions did start it around that, and um, I'm following some of the news feeds, which actually point that uh, in, there are quite a number of uh, places where the revival of the indigenous languages is taking place. Um, now, uh, this discussion should be taken to the next level. Uh, because um, ultimately, the, the the issue of languages is should not be seen as uh, the as an issue which should be taken forward by some private initiatives only, uh, or the issue which only concerns the indigenous peoples themselves. That only they should kind mm. of deal with these issues. It's mm. a public matter. Mm. It's a matter of public concern right. for the entire Canadian society. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what I'm trying to say in my article. So with all these progresses, which um, we should acknowledge, they did uh, uh, take place in the past years, but with all these progresses, um, we are still um, at the point where the, there is no, at least from my assessment, there is no um, kind of big discussion or there is no clarity on how exactly uh, Canada is going to institutionally accommodate the uh, indigenous and uh, minority languages. So when I am saying institutionally, it means uh, how exactly all of these discussions, good initiatives, um, further ideas on advancing um, yeah, indigenous and minority languages, how they will be shaped in terms of policies, in terms of laws, uh, that's what I mean by institutionalization. So mm. this this is the next step, which is at the table now, and which I'm proposing to discuss in a in this uh, in a broader discussion within the Canadian uh, society. You know, uh, as you you point out, it's a community issue. It's it's something that every Canadian and every person within the country should be looking at. Even though we are looking at different uh, languages for minorities, for Indigenous uh, communities, that everyone should be taking part. And I would think that that for the most part, unless I'm mistaken, uh, once these and maybe it's already been set up uh, because of the official language uh, of French being introduced into Canada, that that the the, the policies and the language is there to include other languages by using that as, a, as what's already been set up to, to do. And I would think that if that were the case, it would be fairly easy to introduce more languages for Canada to be multicultural, as, as you say, and, and bring that yeah. forward. So uh, here I would like just to kind of bring attention to some nuances, okay. uh, important nuances. Mm -hmm. 
so obviously this call for the broad discussion on indigenous and minority languages does not automatically mean that I'm calling for making all of the indigenous or minority languages official languages of Canada. So that's not what uh, I'm calling for in my article. Okay. Some of the languages could be made official of, of those which, uh, for, which are now indigenous and minority languages. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some criteria which could be looked at. So, for example, the share of the speakers of, the, of some languages uh, in Canada there could be some symbolic uh, considerations as well, um, mm. uh, warranting uh, like officialization of some of the languages. Um, I think Inuit languages uh, is one of the examples because, uh, numerically speaking, uh, uh, speakers of uh, Inuit languages are not uh, a very substantial uh, number in mm. Canada. Mm -hmm. However, from symbolic point of view, that could be uh, could be a good move. Mm. Uh, to signal that Canada is ready for uh, changing its colonial past and turning uh, with its face to the um, issue of revival of indigenous uh, cultures and uh, languages. Mm -hmm. um, there are many other ways how these languages could be accommodated. So, for example, like in Europe, there are places where uh, uh, some minority languages are made uh, provincial, uh, mm -hmm. kind of languages, regional languages, yeah. okay. uh, sure. local languages. Yep. So if there is kind of a concentration of, uh, I don't know, Arabic or Spanish speakers in particular um, cities, um, this language could be made uh, a language, uh, uh, officialized language in this particular city, not necessarily in the entire province mm -hmm. or the country. And again, the degree to which the languages uh, could be accommodated also may vary. So for some mostly widely speaking, uh, spoken languages, um, there could be a requirement uh, uh, for some official acts, at least at the municipal level, uh, for them to be translated in these minority languages. Mm. Uh, for some languages which are of less uh, uh, use, um, the accommodation could be to some less extent. So mm. there are degrees. Right. to the accommodation right so the the discussion is not just about making or not making a language an official language of yes. canada the discussion is much more nuanced it has uh, degrees uh in in uh, in there um so the accommodation could happen within the limits of a province of a city even of an uh, of an organization mm. <laughs> my previous kind of piece for the conversation concerned use of languages in elections mm. so the uh, canadian uh, electoral commission did make some steps in the past about translating some of its materials uh, in uh, in some indigenous and minority languages uh, but since that uh, time it was i think in 2019 when these materials were Oh, 18 or 17 like several years ago mm. when they were put uh, on the website since mm. that time i didn't see much more uh, in terms of further movement towards accommodation of uh, uh, these languages mm. but here in canada we have uh, for example retired people who when they become citizens in canada uh, they are not required to pass a, a, a language exam so we have voters in canada like aged voters mm -hmm. who are not very proficient in English or, or, or French mm. and they are voters. They sure. have full right to come and vote. Right. So obviously they are now help with some friends, some relatives in this exercise, but uh, in a rights-based country, these people should actually be uh, uh, provided the opportunities to cast their vote independently mm. without necessarily seeking sure. advice from somebody else. Right. Another issue, I mean, healthcare with right. all this uh, COVID crisis. Yeah. Uh, I've seen many positive steps with regard to linguistic accommodation. So, for example, many of the relevant uh, uh, booklets and information mm -hmm. about COVID, uh, anti COVID measures were translated in multiple minority languages. And this is a very good uh, progress. However, my question is so, what about the non COVID times? Mm -hmm. um, just to give you an example, so for example, there are some uh, 
um, parents uh, visiting or living with their um, uh, children, um, like migrants mm-hmm. here in Canada, who were sponsored uh, to reunite with the family, mm-hmm. who don't speak uh, well or at all English or French. Right. They come to the healthcare institutions, including public ones, and uh, they cannot uh, do anything on their own. So they're basically uh, forced to discuss most intimate, you know, health issues with a third person present uh, in order mm-hmm. to kind of to translate like someone, you know, maybe from relatives, not necessarily of the same um, uh, sex. So yeah. um, people sure. are kind of put in the situation to not be able uh, to deal with their health matters independently or on their own. Uh, so there are many issues with the languages in healthcare. Yeah. And there are several other areas where um, languages are quite vital, like education is another one. Mm-hmm. So even in Nunavut, as we see from this uh, legal uh, action, even in Nunavut, where the Inuktitut is uh, an official language uh, in, in Nunavut, uh, I mean, apparently um, students, some students at least, are not able to get uh, instruction uh, in their native language. Right. And this is the very basic uh, requirement, actually, of all the international standards, which I mentioned mm. in the article. Mm-hmm. The instruction listings at the school uh, level uh, should be provided as much as possible in the native language of the student. Mm. And this apparently doesn't happen, even in most, I would say, advanced in terms of the uh, officialized or institutionalized uh, language uh, in Canada, in Nunavut. Right. Slava, we're, we'll have to leave it there, but your article certainly does raise, raise some great points and uh, gives some people uh, some good points to look to for raising exactly this discussion to talk about uh, becoming truly multicultural in Canada. And I want to thank you for being on the show to share your thoughts and your article and uh, wish you all the best in the future. And let's hope that your article does uh, create some discussion on this matter and bring it back to the forefront so that we can move forward on this in the, in the near future. Yes, thank you so much for the invitation. And yes, uh, let's hope that uh, this is uh, the beginning of the discussion. That is Slava Balan. He is a human rights researcher and practitioner, and he is originally from Moldova, now established in Canada. He is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. It has been a pleasure to have him on the show talking about and using his article that he wrote in the conversation, authored there. You can go and check it out. It is called Canada Must Accommodate Indigenous and Minority Languages to Be Truly Multicultural. And that is Moment of Truth for today. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.